In October, the Heritage Foundation in Washington released its 578-page 2023 Index of U.S. Military Strength. Retired Military Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood edited the index, which includes essays and analysis from over 16 experts chosen by the Heritage Foundation. The introduction to the index concludes that, quote, America's leadership role remains in question and its security interests are under substantial pressure. The authors finish the intro by writing that increasingly we're bedeviled by debt and domestic discord that constrain its ability to sustain its forces at a level that is commensurate with its interests. Dakota Wood, this 578-page Index of U.S. Military Strength was meant to do what? Inform the American public about a very important aspect of our nation, national power, uh, that they just don't get from any other source. Right. So, you know, you've got a kid, he's in school all year long and you get to the end of that year and you get a report card. How well or poorly did he do? And so we viewed this index as kind of a report card for the American public. Uh, you know, we're taxpayers. <laughs> Where's all this money going? Uh, is the world disordered or safe? And you have a military. Uh, but, uh, you know, folks in the military, outside the military will kind of portray it in a certain way. And so what we wanted to do is provide a facts based evidentiary approach to reporting to the American public the status of U.S. military power and the implications for having enough or or not so. What was your role in it? Uh, I was uh, asked to put this thing together. Uh, Originally, it was going to be just a 20-page glossy sort of overview, but uh, given the background uh, that I had and this kind of analytic efforts, and especially working for Mr. Andy Marshall, who was the longtime director of the Office of that Assessment, I thought we needed to kind of go deep and provide context for military power. Go back to Andy Marshall, though. Uh, He is well-known in some circles. Tell us what he did and why he meant so much to you. Actually, an economist out of the University of Chicago way back when, 1950s, and uh, he uh, got to start really with some colleagues at the Rand Corporation uh, associated uh, with uh, some of the great nuclear deterrence theorists of our time, Herman Kahn, the Woolstetters, and others. And so understood that there's more to the story than just counting ships and planes and warheads, you know, that there is a cultural component, a political component, an economic component. And so he kind of developed this approach, which has been termed net assessment. Turns out he didn't like that term at all. But if you're going to look at yourself, you need to look at your competitor or your friends as well and see how that area of competition, whatever that might be, is playing out. Right, because there could be driving factors that are really influencing this that are just not uh, obvious, or they are obvious, but people didn't discount them because they're so glaringly obvious. What was and what so he? Yeah, in the early seventies, he was asked to come in and do this at a national level and at started, the Pentagon uh, initially and the National Security Council off the White House, and found that all the data you needed was inside the Pentagon. And they just weren't going to give it to an outsider. So under uh, uh, Secretary of Defense um, Schlesinger back then, uh, started the Office of Net Assessment in 1972, a politically appointed position, and was reappointed by every president since uh, Richard
Richard Nixon uh, to a uh, time he retired just as, you know, a few years ago. And he's, he's passed uh, uh, two or three years ago now, I think. But just a wonderful guy who brought a, a different perspective on how we look at problems. And he thought um, the thing like the global war on terrorism, as important as it was, was basically a strategic distraction. You know, if you're facing competitors with deep inventories of nuclear weapons that could mean the end of your country, that should take precedence over terrorists without air forces and navies and armies. And so it was just an appreciation for this fuller story and how do you tell that story? And so that was part of my kind of upbringing in the late 90s, early 2000s in that world. And then now, you know, 20-some-odd years later, was asked to do this assessment of U.S. military power. And and so, again, whether you've got one tank or a 1,000, whether that's good or bad, it depends on the nature of the world as an operating environment. Are your competitors capable or not? And now we can have a discussion about military power. Right. And then with some experience, I mean, you know, 20 years for myself in the Marine Corps. Uh, so it's uh, retired in 2005. So it's almost 40, 45 years total that I've been around this and, and all my colleagues that contribute. Yeah, you know, this index is a work of like 20 authors. And so they're bringing dip, uh, rich, deep experience in their particular areas. And then I help kind of put all that together. We published the first edition, again, this report card in 2015. This 2023 edition is our ninth. And so we've been able to kind of track trends and spending habits and levels of readiness across the military. And we've made sure that it's historically rooted. You know, not just what you think today, but how has military power been used in previous uh, eras of conflict? So historically rooted, data-driven, and we provide our own professional experience as, uh, as informed you know, understanding of these uh, issues. I don't know whether you said it or what I heard from somebody else, but uh, that the Pentagon was a bit irritated that in this report you used the word weak to describe our current military posture. Well, it's a, it's a searing indictment, isn't it, to say that our military, the greatest in the world, is actually weak. I mean, how, how can we have great people and cutting-edge technologies and, what, 20 years of operational experience since you know, 9-11, uh, just as a starting point, how could that possibly be weak? And uh, so if you're in the Pentagon, you're concerned about morale of the force, you want to recruit American youth to join the military, uh, you tout the nobility of service and civic virtue associated with that, and now somebody's calling your baby ugly, you know? I mean, it's you, you view that as a real insult. And so, again, parts of the index, we, re, we go to links to explain what we're saying and why we're saying and what the, the paradigm is or the framework within which we're saying weak. So it's not that uh, a soldier or an airman is a weak individual. I mean, we've got fantastic people. But when you look at global interests from the United States perspective, obligations, you know, stretching from our NATO obligations, you know, in in constant treaty to the stuff we owe in terms of an obligation to Japan and South Korea, and those are matched with our economic interests. It's a big planet. 
And unlike the Cold War days where you had one monolithic opponent in the Soviet Union, today you've got many more competitors that are also technologically enabled. You know, I mean, China's a nuclear power with a vastly growing military. Russia's getting kind of beaten down in Ukraine, but they still have their nuclear weapons capabilities and submarines and ballistic missiles and all these other sorts of things. Crazy Kim Jong-un in North Korea, nuclear power and near nuclear Iran. So it's a very challenging world. And so what we do is we look at the size of our military. Is Do we have enough to cover down on all these interests? Are they training enough? So I can have a great soldier or a great Marine, but if they're not shooting enough to maintain competencies or pilots aren't flying enough, you know, those sorts of things, even though I've got stuff and I've got people if it's not being used and practiced with, then you're not ready. And then the equipment. Do you have modern equipment or is it old equipment? And the answer to that is very old. So in the aggregate, at a national strategic level, our military is not up to the task to do the things we would expect it to do. Now you talked about 20 years in the United States Marine Corps. Should I be suspicious that when uh, you rated the different services, <laughs> the Army was rated marginal? The Navy was rated weak, the Air Force was rated very weak, and the Marine Corps was rated strong. Yeah, funny about that. I'd be suspicious as well. But uh, I I guess the saving grace here, my out, is that we have individuals from those services writing the sections in each one of those services. So our director, uh, Tom Spore, in our Center for National Defense, is a retired three-star Army general. And uh, so 36 years of active duty service, he wrote the chapter on the Army. And so he talks to all of his Army colleagues, you know, people that are still in uniform, uh, looks at their own budget documents and what they're reporting on readiness, looks at the historical employment of the U.S. Army and every contingency uh, from the Korean War on how much army was used. And so if he comes out and says the army is marginal, that's an army guy talking about his own service. You know, I've looked at the Marine Corps and looked at the modernity of the equipment, the level at which they're training, the focus of the organization. And so for all the, in our methodology, we talk about these criteria and and the numbers play out as we would uh, roll this, that it comes out strong. Uh, Captain Brent Sadler, U.S. Navy retired, Wrote the section on the Navy, a career submarine officer. And then J.V. Venable, retired Air Force colonel, uh, commanded the Thunderbirds, commanded the largest combat air group in the Middle East back in 2006 or seven, somewhere in there. Uh, what, something like 4,000 hours, you know, as a pilot flying the F-16. So he's the guy that rated the Air Force as very weak based on pilot shortfalls, lack of flying hours, age of equipment. And uh, so... Uh, the people who are, who are charged with writing the sections on Europe or the Middle East or Russia or the you know U.S. Space Force have got background in those areas. Process question. Can the average person who is listening to this read this report? That's the whole focus of this thing is to write for a lay audience. So if somebody is interested enough to dive into the index of U.S. military strength, I mean, I'm amazed at how many uh, how much traffic we get to the website uh, for it and people who want hard copies of the publication itself. So if you've got enough interest, it is written for you. We, we, we uh, uh, don't uh, get involved in jargon. We write in a storytelling you know, narrative on this thing. Uh, the, the measures we use, we thought about how do people normally think about the military? 
So we're not going to get into things like lines of supply and logistical underpinnings. We're going to talk about what's the status of tanks and combat airplanes and ships, you know, things that would normally resonate in the average citizen's mind and then talk about military power in those terms. So I think it's very readable, and and one of the more difficult tasks on this is to present this information in a very readable format. Is it fair to call the Heritage Foundation a conservative think tank? Oh, very much so. So on a political spectrum, a socioeconomic political spectrum, they hew to conservative principles. Uh, There are many policy organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I mean, we're just swimming in them, right? And so you'll have organizations that approach either a single topic, uh, health care, education, uh, how we treat our pets, whatever that might be, or you have larger organizations that cover down on a great many different issues, and Heritage is one of the largest uh, in the country. And so the approach is small, limited government, fiscal restraint, uh, we're not the world's policemen. I mean, all these things that you would hear a politically conservative organization talk about, that's the driving principle. But uh, I think, and, and another thing I think that, that uh, underlies the credibility of the report is we don't do any contract work with the government. We don't take any funding from foreign sources. I mean, this is a member-driven organization, and, and it's what uh, makes it possible for us to do this sort of work. You know, I wrote something down that's not in the report because I want to get your view of it. You were a lieutenant colonel uh, when you retired from the mm-hmm. Marine Corps, 20 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, but people outside and don't understand, they, here's, here's a view that you don't hear about very often. Lockheed Martin, mm-hmm. these are the f- top five contractors, billions and billions of dollars that are spent with them to build the equipment. Lockheed Martin on their board of directors is Joseph Dunford, who used to run mm-hmm. the chief. He was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of right. Staff, a former Marine, not an ex-Marine, as mm-hmm. you would say. Very well known and with a great reputation behind him, sure. General Dynamics, Jim Mattis, former Secretary of Defense mm-hmm. and Marine mm-hmm. General. Uh, Northrop Grumman, the number three. Uh, Gary Ruffhead, Admiral Ruffett, who was the CNO, Chief of Naval Operations, right. uh, he's on their board. Boeing, Admiral John Richardson, who was the Chief of Naval Operations. Raytheon, Admiral James, I'm not sure how you pronounce Stavridis. it. Winfield. Oh, right, right, yeah, Winfield. Yeah. Uh, and then Robert Work, who was both a Marine Corps mm-hmm. Officer General and was the Deputy Secretary of Defense. point of bringing this up is that when people stand outside, they see these big shots in the service just migrate over to these big corporations. Yeah. Get $400,000 a year to be on the board. What, how do we trust all this? Yeah, well, do we believe in the integrity of the individual? <clears throat> so when they're in active service, they're responsible for the lives of the men and women placed in their charge. You know, they are responsible for the use of actual military power, I mean, waging war. So for some reason, we trusted them to do that. Uh, we extol the virtues of integrity and honesty and truth and all these sorts of things that um, are inculcated into America's youth when they get out of high school or college and join the military. So apparently, we trusted them well enough to do those things. And yet, some Somehow we believe that when they leave service 
and continue to participate in national defense matters. Now they've become money-grubbing, profit-seeking, you know, evil and military-industrial complex sorts of minions, right? And so I don't know how you actually square those points of view. If You don't become bad, you know, overnight, you know, in this sort of way. And so I, I think that the, the defense sector is an easy target to shoot at, you know, coming from a Marine, right, because we spend a lot of money on ships and planes and those sorts of things. And, and because all of those are public records, you know, what does the American government spend on defense? You know, all the budget documents, all the procurement requests, uh, the various figures that you just brought out in terms of individuals, all that stuff is public record. And and I don't know that we have that kind of visibility in any other sector of the U.S. economy. Right. So it's easy to take shots because you know what you're shooting at. If you had to go to war and if you look at U.S. history from the time of the Revolutionary War, 1770s until now, we're in a war about every 20 years. It's just part of our historical timeline. So to think that we'll never be at war again is kind of a fantastical notion. So if you find yourself at war and you don't have the appropriate airplane or tank, now there's lots of, you know, who's to blame for that, right? Where's the finger pointing? Why couldn't we defend ourselves? And yet if you have a company that makes a tank or an airplane, you know, that you would have on hand and be able to train with, somehow or other they're the bad guys, because they make military gear. So again, there's a, a contradiction in there. You either want useful military power, which is only possible that by having men and women who are willing to serve the country and having tools that are up to the task of prevailing in today's conflicts. I mean, you know, look at what's happening in Ukraine, right? Or what China is putting into the field or um, odious regimes like those in Iran and North Korea <clears throat> where you have starving populations <clears throat> and yet they have nuclear weapons. So there are value systems out there uh, that uh, conflict with ours, and you want to have the ability to deal with that world. Somebody has to make that gear. So now when we look at the retired community, if, if you've just retired with 30 or 40 years of experience dealing with military things, do we expect that that person is going to turn to farming and grow, you know, corn in Nebraska or something like that? I mean, you want to take that insight and that experience and get more value out of that. Right. So if you were a, a great football player at the high school, college and now professional leagues, and then they leave active football playing because of injury or whatever, and now they're signed on as a coach, isn't that a revolving door as well? Aren't they making big bucks by being uh, you know, the assistant coach for your offensive team or something? So I, don't, I, I think unless, unless we can show that the integrity has been compromised or they're dishonest people or they're working to harm their country, I don't see a problem with it. I'm not sure these numbers are accurate, yeah. but I looked it up today. Uh, the, if you are an E1 or a private in the Army or Marine Corps, mm -hmm. for that matter, that you can make as much as forty-two thousand dollars a year when you talk about housing and sus and your, sure. you know, your underwriting um, uh, sustenance, four hundred six dollars a month uh, benefit. The reason I bring this up is because you point out in your report. First and foremost, that only about 22, 23 percent of the American people are eligible yeah. to go into the service. Uh, and, and then 
that all of the services are having trouble, I'm not sure about the Marine Corps, are having trouble recruiting, can't fill their recruiting requirements. This, there's a, Something's not mixing up here. Why yeah. do you think that is the case? Since uh, the 80s, the American population has grown from 220 million to 330 million plus. So a huge upward curve, right? Uh, and I'm a Marine, so I don't do math that well, but I think that's a 50% <laughs> increase. Uh, the military, on the other hand, in that same period of time, uh, back in the 80s, the Army was almost 800,000 soldiers soldiers active duty. I think it was 770,000. Today, the U.S. Army is 470,000. So they've lost 300,000 or more active duty soldiers. So on those two diverging lines, more and more people, smaller and smaller military, there are fewer touch points. I mean, fewer references, fewer people that the average high school student would have any connection to whatsoever with any kind of military service. So how do we even know about the military? Well, you've got news reports and social media and movies. And how that is often portrayed is if you join the military, you come away with PTSD. You know, some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's filled with racists, with, uh, you know, sexual harassers. I mean, it's just kind of this broken body. That's what social media and what the news media will often portray, right, which is completely inaccurate. We've got great men and women who are joining the military. They learn teamwork. They learn values. They learn discipline and restraint. They leave the military service, and they're just better citizens. You know, they've more stuff has been entrusted to them, uh, not only at home but abroad. You know, carrying firearms, for example. You know, and not shooting up the local population. I mean, we just have wonderful, wonderful people, but that message uh, doesn't come across. At the same time, in our culture, our American society, seventy-seven percent of American youth between seventeen years old and twenty-four years old are ineligible because of obesity, health problems. Uh, mental health issues, criminal records, and substance abuse. So even if they wanted to join, they're ineligible without a waiver. That's more of a societal problem than it is a military issue. However, how do you explain the Navy officers who have been jailed Mm -hmm. and convicted of taking money from a guy named Fat Leonard? Right. um, uh, I think he's a Malaysian originally, who himself is going to spend time in prison. Huge scandal. But, I mean, in my lifetime, I've never seen this much scandal where he had services he provided the Navy ships over in the Pacific and that uh, he was making all these deals with these guys yeah, so who he, were officers, not, not enlisted. Right, no, and senior officers. You know, They would tell him when a ship was going to visit a port, right, uh, which is classified information, the schedules deployed ships. He then would be able to... You maneuver to provide services for this incoming ship because you know how many people, how long it was going to be and all that stuff. In turn, these officers would get goodies, you know, trips and access to prostitutes and the whole bit. I mean, it was a huge scandal. And I think what this actually reveals is something that we all know anyway, where people are flawed human beings, right? So you have most people who are great. You have some people in the clergy, in sports teams, in business, and law enforcement, right, that run afoul, you know, the corrupt cop. And so a news report will come out, they'll talk about some police officer who's in bed with the mob or whatever that is, you know, turning a blind eye to something going on, and it colors the, the public's perception of the entire police department. But the reality is 99 point some odd percent 
you know, of the police in that department are just great people, you know, serving the community. So we do have scandals. If you remember Tailhook back in the 80s with the uh, naval aviators, we've got this Fat Leonard thing involving some uh, ship uh, uh, procurement personnel. Uh, that are involved, all the services will have some kind of a scandal to blow up. And again, we have a better ability to see what's going on, right? We have greater investigative techniques, uh, modern technology makes it easier to share that information instead of trying to hide it. And so we see a service that is working very hard to understand the depth and the breadth of the nature of this uh, Fat Leonard case, uh, and that can be a representative of any other case that went on in any of those services, and do something about it, where perhaps in an earlier era, it would have been swept under the rug and nobody would ever know. How difficult has it been for the service to recruit officers? During this period? I think it mirrors the difficulty in recruiting enlisted personnel, right? So officers typically going to be college graduates. Uh, we have seen declines in the number of applicants to the service academies, the Army's at West Point, the Navy's at Annapolis, and the Air Force's at Colorado Springs. So there's just a decreasing interest among the American public writ large to come in. The Air Force is short 650 pilots. Uh, they have such a difficult time in recruiting young American college graduates who want to fly that they have a near 100% graduation rate in their flight school. It's like 94% graduation of those that don't uh, make it through pipeline, the pilot training pipeline, for a lack of just ability to learn how to fly, less than one half of 1%. So the others, are they fail out because of some illegal issue or personal issue or something like that. So it's almost like if you've got a pulse, you know, and you can fog a mirror, you're going to become a pilot in the Air Force, which is a huge indictment. But it tells you that the challenge the services have to get people to join the military. Round numbers. Army, as you said, 470,000 on active duty. Uh, Navy, 346,000. Air Force, 329,000. Right. Marine Corps, 180. Thousand nine hundred. Why is the Marine Corps? Well, it's less than that. It's in the one seventies. I, I did. Yeah, I did see that this morning. But why is that not? Why is the Marine Corps smaller? It always has been small. Always has been. It just has a different mission. So if you think about it, you know, which it truly is, is a naval service. Uh, though it does superbly on sustained operations ashore. I mean, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraqi freedom. I mean, it's one of the problems that Marine Corps has had over the last 20 years is grown to become a second land army. You know, very heavily armored, very logistically dependent. And so that was a criticism, uh, hence the current commandant's effort to get it back to sea. So if you're shipboard infantry, if you're a force that lands from amphibious craft ashore, uh, it was never meant to be a second army. It's always been smaller, and uh, rightfully speaking, uh, the Marine Corps will say they're basically a one-war force. I mean, if you had to go to a big war... The Marine Corps is going to invest in that, and they won't have much left you know, for other things. The, the, the Army is a land army. It is just uh, bigger, has greater capabilities in scope and scale. It's meant to get to a place, uh, displace an enemy force fighting tooth and nail not to be displaced, and then hold that ground. The Marine Corps has a different job, and so it's just going to be a smaller capability. I did notice that it was a one-war service, as you said, mm-hmm. but in World War II— yeah. 
They were in the Pacific, Marines, obviously, in the, and uh, in Europe. Uh, America, from its founding, has always been suspicious of maintaining very large standing forces, right? I mean, they were <laughs> very angry with the King of England quartering his soldiers, you know, there in, in uh, the homes of, uh, of colonists. So we've just been kind of skeptical of that. It was, it was in the aftermath of World War II where you had this monolithic Soviet Union and the expansion of communism in various forms and, and autocratic you know, forms of government that really forced Western nations in particular to maintain large forces because they had to be ready. And in the world of nuclear capabilities, it was all, all that much more important. So we've got these big standing militaries. And when you go to war like a World War II, where an entire nation is harnessed for battle, like the Japanese Empire or Germany or Russia in the early stages when it was aligned with Nazi Germany, um, that's just that's massed people, it's massed industrialized military forces, and you have to have something large enough to combat that. So with the Pacific War, inherently maritime in its nature, it was going to be a Navy-Marine Corps fight primarily, whereas the Air, the Army Air Corps back in those days and the U.S. Army handed, uh, handled the extended land combat on the European continent, right? Not to disavow, you know, MacArthur and, and Army forces in the Southern Pacific. But uh, that large a force was needed because of the scale of operations and the fact that you had the entire Japanese nation mobilized for war, and you just needed more stuff. And so what we find is Americans always rise to the challenge, right? Whether it's a hurricane or a tornado, neighbors come out to help clean up the mess and help their neighbors. When the nation's been attacked, people will want to join up and defend our country. <clears throat> the problem with today's environment is it warfare is now so complicated that it takes a lot of time to train and to get good at the things that you're being asked to do. So you can't just have a citizen army that stands up in six months and expect them to be competent in very complicated modern warfare, hence the need for standing military forces that then would be augmented by call-ups in, in, in a time of major conflict. I mean, this is the value of the National Guard, right, that support their fellow citizens and their home states. And then when we have to go someplace, right, that they augment the Army and the Air Force primarily. There is some naval reserve, and the Marine Corps has a reserve component but no guard component. So there are mechanisms for everybody to throw in, but you have to have a standing capability that is competent in flying planes and employing artillery and all these other sorts of things that you can use on fairly short notice until you can get the rest of the country up and running. Let me bring up something that even I can understand. Uh, and today's Wall Street Journal front page, there's an article that talks about the two 747s that are due to replace the president's plane. Mm -hmm. And some of the background on this is that I can remember President Trump saying he was going to keep the figure under five million, and he got it down to three point a billion. He got it down for these two planes to three point nine billion, which of course Boeing is now losing mm -hmm. probably a billion dollars on this whole process, saying they want more money. But the big thing in this is they can't deliver it on time in 2024. Right. They say in the article they'll be lucky to deliver these two planes by 2028. Why is Boeing having so much trouble just building two planes for the president of the United States? Well, I think like any uh, government procurement program, everybody is, buys into – we charitably call it a fiction. I'll call it a lie at the very beginning. 
So somebody wants something, whether it's a highway built in their district or a, a battleship, uh, I mean, modern equivalent to a, a ship being built in a district or what have you. Everybody wants those high-paying jobs. <clears throat> we want to actually contribute this capability. I mean, it's actually needed in most cases. And if you're a company that does that, you want that work. <clears throat> so the the contracting organization, whether it's the Air Force getting these Air Force One aircraft or you're buying a, a fleet of tanks or whatever, um, you're going to say, I'm trying to anticipate not what the needs are today, but what they might be 20 or 25 or 30 years from now, and look at how technology changes over time. Um, so they want that. <clears throat> the company wants to make it, so they're going to say, I can make what you want. We can do it on your timeline, and we understand the budget game, so we'll come in at that budget figure. The member of Congress who wants to approve that also wants those jobs and wants that uh, talking point, and so everybody buys into something that is wholly unrealistic. When you actually start bending metal, you find out the technologies to be achieved are harder and take longer, that the schedule is going to slip because you can't deliver something overnight that has magical capabilities, right? And because of budget and things like inflation and domestic spending priorities and government-subsidized health care or whatever you want to talk about, right, the money is always volatile because they vote on it every year. Right, continuing resolutions. You have to then spend money in a very hurried manner, which is always ineffective and inefficient and stuff. So, what what routinely happens is it it runs over cost because the original figure wasn't realistic. It's going to take longer than what all the technologists promised would be the case. And because of the time and expense and how priorities have changed over administrations, you're going to get fewer of these things. So you get a smaller delivered capability that's less capable than what you had hoped for, and it's going to cost you more than what you originally planned. Where if you were honest at the very beginning, the price tag is probably going to be higher than what might be promised originally, but it's more realistic, and you would actually get what you're wanting you know, in a plausible period of time. So uh, today's Air Force One aircraft have to deal with cyber threats, uh, uh, anti-aircraft missile threats. You want redundant com- uh, communications capabilities. I mean, if you actually had to use those, it's an Air Force One platform in a time of emergency, and it didn't have some capability, again, then we would be saying, how could this have happened? How could we have taken you know, the leader of our nation and put them in aircraft where they can't conduct business as we would need them to do? So these are just very complicated things that everybody involved buys into a fiction at the very beginning. The reality then is once again rediscovered. 10 or 15 years later at a great elevated price and less uh, technical capability than what you've been promised. As long as we're talking about things that haven't worked out on schedule, let me bring up the Gerald R. Ford Carrier, which is four years late. Yep. Being online, it's its first ever deployment at, at the moment we're speaking, a $13 billion machine if that's the accurate price. And of course, as outsiders looking in, yep. we never know what the accurate price is. But why do we need 11 aircraft carriers in the world where the only country, as you know, that comes even close to that? I think the most that anybody else has is two, maybe three at China. And mm. uh, But why do we need 11 aircraft carriers? And then why, if we're planning on these every four or five years, are we behind four years in the process? And that's it's on the manufacturer, not on the military, that this is uh, happening. 
Yeah. So uh, on the manufacturing side, if you have steam ca- catapults, so you know it has nuclear reactors that produce a lot of energy. Part of that goes to a, a steam generating capability, where this expanding steam, like you know we've seen in other things, you know it's kind of a glorified hydraulics uh, system, operates these catapults. So you go to see Top Gun. <clears throat> You know, airplane launches down, you see all the steam coming up there. Those have to be reset. There's a lot of machinery involved in that. It takes time to recycle the uh, gear. There's a lot of mechanical linkages in there. So it's just a maintenance nightmare. And you can only generate so many flights off that flight deck in a given period of time. Uh, what we did, we, the country, <clears throat> is went from that steam catapult to electromagnetic. So maglev trains you've seen hurtling down the tracks in Japan, uh, by using this magical property of magnetism, uh, they can use that in these catapults. Uh, you can uh, dial in the weight of the aircraft. You can get more effective launch cycles. You can reset it. And it saves a lot of engineering space under the deck that you can use for other stuff aboard the ship. So it's just a much more effective, efficient. Never been done before. And so you got to work out those kinks. The weapons elevators were another one. Those are also magnetically run uh, electrical systems instead of mechanical linkages and chains and cables and those sorts of things. So to bring a munition from deep down in the ship uh, where the magazines are at up to the top, <clears throat> these new elevators uh, kinks had to be worked out. They would have done all this stuff in a test bed on land going back to budget. Nobody wanted to pay for that extra step. And so we skipped past that as the Defense Department. So they didn't do a lot of the testing on land because it would have upped the initial price. But if they had done that, then you would have figured all these things out before you actually put them on a new ship. So the manufacturer, because of budget drivers, uh, tried four or five brand new things on a finished platform. And now we discover that it didn't go as smoothly as everybody had hoped. So again, it's this, you can pay me now or pay me later. The pay me now is slightly more in the sticker price, but you're going to get assured performance later on. If you don't want to pay for that assurance up front, you're going to pay more of it uh, much later on. Now, why do we need so many? If everybody came to the United States to fight a war, we could have all of our stuff based right here at home, and you'd only have to reach out two or 300 miles. But if China now has a fleet of 360 ships that has grown from 220 just in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, latest generation aircraft, massive missile inventories, all of that stuff operates within just a few hundred miles of the Chinese coastline. If we have economic interests and treaty obligations and we have to deploy a force into that region, you're operating 7,000 miles from home. So now as a strategist or a planner, you'll look at what countries could you operate from in that region? Who has an air base to generate air power? So if those air bases are in Guam or Hawaii or in Australia, and they're also thousands of miles away, they're, they're basically irrelevant. Let me ask you this, though. Um, there have been a lot of... Uh, stories lately about hypersonics and that we're behind in that game. Mm-hmm. First, I mean, China is ahead of us and Russia's ahead of us. And then HIMARS, which is being used, as you all well know, in Ukraine, uh, weapons that we're providing. Right. Define what hypersonics is and what HIMARS is and why wouldn't those capabilities be able to take out an aircraft carrier just like that? Well, uh, an aircraft carrier, like any platform, either a tank or what have you, isn't operating uh, undefended, right? So as anti-armor, anti-tank weapons have improved, uh, the tank system itself improves to have uh, close-in defense, 
uh, weapon systems. So the uh, Israelis have developed a wonderful system, senses an incoming anti-tank round, and then it shoots out its own projectiles of various types to defeat that round before it gets to the ship. So if you have an anti-ship cruise missile, the carrier is not undefended. It has its own defenses, plus it has a screen of other ships. So there are lots of sensors to detect incoming things and shoot them down or to interdict them somewhere in flight before they get to the ship itself. For so, hypersonics, though? Well, hypersonics now are, are another game because they move so fast. And that speed is their chief advantage. If you're moving it, and hypersonic, I think, is like Mach 8 or above. So 8, 9, 10, 12 times the speed of sound. Really hard to calculate an intercept with an anti-missile missile of some type and blow that thing up before it gets to the target. But they have to use extraordinarily exotic materials to make those. The engines are just a marvelous work of engineering, so they're very, very expensive. So regardless of the country, how much of your budget can you dedicate to a hypersonic missile? So how many of those things can you actually buy? They're going to be few in number, and you're going to be very careful about how you choose to use them. They still have to fly, and if you're moving very, very fast, any kind of maneuvering is very hard because the body is moving so quickly, right? So when you have you know, an aileron or a rudder or something like that that would move this thing, or even jets that might move it, it takes a long time to move this thing. So you might use a hypersonic or hypervelocity sort of munition and try to hit an aircraft carrier, but that ship is actually moving in the water, not as fast as the weapon is, but if the weapon takes hundreds of miles to make a course correction, Right, You can kind of get where it's going to go in that final moment and then affect evasion of some type. So it's a very competitive space. Same thing applies to anti-aircraft weapons versus the aircraft. Can you reduce the signature of the airplane? Can it be more maneuverable? Can it use its own kind of chaff and flares and things that distract an incoming missile? So it's a very competitive space. The more advanced weapon you get, the more expensive it is. Because it's more expensive, you can buy fewer of them. So you have to be very discriminating. These HIMARS systems is a rocket system that comes in a box launcher put on the back of a vehicle. Uh, Because it's boxed, it depends on what you're trying to do as to what kind of rocket you put inside that box. But they're very discriminating. They can target things hundreds of miles away, but again, very, very expensive. So is the target you're going to shoot at worth a hundred or $150,000 missile or rocket for each shot? So you're not going to use these things against a single tank. You're going to try to find an ammunition depot or a headquarters element or something like that. If you can find it, you can probably hit it. But the enemy is always also going to be bringing defenses to bear. So you're going to fire these in salvos. And every time you pull that trigger, it's another $150,000 that you've just expended. So it goes back then to size of defense budgets. A little bit on you. Dakota, where did the name come from? Uh, my father grew up in St. Louis, Missouri uh, in the 1930s and 40s, a very few number of radio stations back then. So the story I understand is a very popular singer back then by the name of Dakota Stanton uh, was just popular with the kids, you know, 1940s, kind of a blues jazz sort of thing. And he just loved the name. You know, I may enjoy the music, but it was this name Dakota just stuck with him. And uh, so he just thought, you know, if I ever have a child and uh, came along, I'm going to tag him with that name. So You were in the service 1985 to 2005. 
Where did you go to get your uh, officer stripe? U- U.S. Naval Academy. So I graduated from a little bitty high school, Sequoia High School in o- northeastern Oklahoma, <clears throat> graduating class of 63 people. So a little Oklahoma kid going off to uh, Annapolis, U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, four years there, I then commissioned into the Marine Corps. And so started my Marine Corps journey in um, the summer of 1985. Uh, did that for 20 years. We got to that 20-year mark. My wife and I said, hey, let's try a different adventure. So ended up uh, retiring, and I've stayed in the defense analytic world since then. I don't know if this is accurate, but I was watching uh, your heritage uh day when you made the announcement on this particular Mm. report and somebody in the audience stood up and said he knew that 17 of the 535 members of congress in the senate and the house did not send anybody to the academies uh and i wondered if you followed up to see if that was accurate and if it is why would somebody not fill those spots which are very generous to somebody that's getting a education paid for. Yeah, so for the listeners, each member of Congress can have five people, five people that they nominated in the academy at any one time. So when one of those spots opens up, you know, the person graduates or drops out or whatever, they can nominate up to 10 people for that spot. And then the Naval Academy has an admissions board. They look at those 10 people, and then they select the person based on whatever criteria that they're using. So if the congressperson's office doesn't receive any applications, well, they've got no name then to forward. So we were talking about the difficulty of recruiting, uh, the number of applications down, something like 25%, I believe, for the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy, 20%, I believe, for the Naval Academy. So we just have a lack of interest. Uh, fewer than 1 in 10 in American youth in that cohort, 17 to 24, fewer than 1 in 10 have expressed any interest uh, or propensity to serve at all in the U.S. military. So you just have fewer people. They even know about the military, see it as a worthwhile uh, career path uh, for them to follow, or perhaps it's how the military is being painted, you know, in terms of its kind of cultural um, standing, right? Uh, if you're not proud of your country, well, why would you want to serve in an organization whose sole purpose is to protect the country? You know, so there are a lot of connections here in our cultural, social, political uh, environment we're dealing with today, a lot of the fractiousness, the divisive politics, um, uh, vitriolic, uh, you know, phrasing and rhetoric. Um, it, it's just a lot of problems, I think, what we're dealing with internal to the country. And that ripples out then as to whether somebody wants to join the police department or wants to join the Marine Corps or, you know, serve their country in, in some way. So I think they're all connected. But the solution is going to be a much more civics-minded discussion uh, and the nobility of serving in any in any capacity uh, that will actually get to the military issue. A day doesn't go by when a major newspaper has a uh, story that the coming war with China, mm-hmm. the coming war with China. And I looked at some of your report, which said the U.S. Army is the smallest since 1940. The Air Force is the smallest since its inception. The Navy is nowhere near its goal. Uh, it has, what, 280 ships or whatever, and its goal is, you say, it should be 400 ships. Right. And we don't even have enough shipbuilding capacity uh, to uh, to build those ships. Right. And is this, I mean, how much of this is why you called our military posture 
week. Well, that military section in the index, we have almost 700 footnotes. So every fact, figure, age, statistic we cite is linked to a publicly accessible source. We don't use any classified material. So on the ship count, uh, 292 ships. I think I looked at the number today. The Navy says they'll drop down to 280 in the next five years before they start an upward trend. So whatever, let's say 292, we'll round that to 300. During the Cold War with almost 600 ships, 580, I think, that kept about 100 at sea uh, every day. Today, a Navy half that size still keeps 100 at sea. So you're working your ships twice as much and the crews twice as long. Of those 100, maybe 60 are in the Indo-Pacific. China has a Navy of 360. So you're operating at a 6 to 1 disadvantage. Those are not good odds in war. In the Air Force, the average age of a fighter airplane is 32 years old. They're already short 650 pilots. Uh, in the Cold War, the average Air Force pilot will get well in excess of 200 hours a year in flight time. Today, the average pilot is fewer than 120. Air Force pilots are flying in, on average, uh, less or about about once a week is what it comes down to, 1.3 sorties or so a week. The Army uh, assesses their, their brigades uh, or their Army is very strong in terms of readiness, but they have also said, this is the Army speaking, that they're focusing their training at the company level. So you would have to aggregate companies into battalions, battalions into brigades, and assume that your company-level focus translates into brigade let, readiness. Let me stop you there to, just to ask. Yeah. How big is a brigade? It's about 5,000. Uh, they vary depending on type, but about 5,000 soldiers in a brigade. How big is a battalion? Mm-hmm. Battalion about, in the Army, about 600 people, 600, 700 people. How, how big is a squad? Uh, well, it's going to be, let's say a dozen, you know, in, in a squad. So, you know, fire team squads, platoons, platoons make companies, companies make, make battalions. So if you're focusing way down low and you're getting individual soldiers to the rifle range and training them in battle drills, that's good. I'm not dismissing that. But if you're working at a battalion or brigade level, that staff, you know, the commander is having to coordinate the action, uh, the employment, the resupply, all the things that come with a lot of things. So we can think about it in terms of a, a sports team. Uh, football, basketball, or whatever. You'll have uh, coaches that'll focus on offense or defense or special teams, something like that. But if you don't get the whole team together to operate as a team and run through the plays, then you can't expect that your forwards and guards in basketball, right, or your outfield and infield, right, or your pitching team is going to all come together magically game time and workers are supposed to work. So the Army assesses itself as strong, but we think that their training focus is too low. So it's another indicator of why we'd say we got some problems. In, in major conflict, the Army historically, regardless of decade or opponent, has employed about 21 brigade equivalents of combat power. So if you want to be able to do more than one thing on the planet, you could double that, right, to 42. We think you need some buffer, and so our metric for the Army is 50 brigades. The Army currently has 31. So, you know, they've got enough for a major Korea-sized thing to start with, but then you start taking casualties. You need to rotate units and do something else in some other part of the world that's just too small. We already talked about the smallness of the Navy. They just don't have enough ships to go out there and get enough relief and crews and ships to actually perform maintenance. So you have backlog maintenance, which makes broken ships even more broke. 
takes longer and more money to get them fixed to get out into the fight. Uh, on the Air Force, uh, again, in, during the Cold War, they used to have 29 squadrons in Europe alone. Today, the entire active component of the Air Force is only 32 squadrons. So you just can't square these numbers with the size of the planet, the fact that the U.S. operates five to 8,000 miles from home in somebody else's neighborhood, has limited access to basing, uh, the Army only has two permanently stationed brigades in Europe. The Air Force is withdrawing two squadrons of F-15 fighters from Okinawa, Japan. So you think that China's a looming threat and we're reducing the number of permanently stationed U.S. Air Force capabilities You know, at that very moment. So all the trends are in the negative direction. Uh, I mentioned the Air Force fighters are 32 years old on average. Their tanker fleet is in the 60s. Our uh, ballistic missiles in silos were first procured, the Minuteman III missiles, in 1972. They were only supposed to be in the ground for 10 years, and we've had them for 50. So it, it just it, the American public is not aware of the aging of the military, how it is shrinking over time because we go off to do something like an Iraq or Afghanistan or something, you know, uh, Bosnia, uh, operations in Syria. I mean, things that you can think over the last 20 or 30 years, you're consuming the military that was built for the Cold War and you're not replacing it at the same pace as it's aging and being used up. Uh, provision to Ukraine, militarily speaking, very, very important. If they're reducing the Russian military, we get a strategic benefit from that in some ways. I mean, you could think about it in that thing. But if we have given them 800,000 artillery rounds from existing inventory, that needs to be replaced. The Marine Corps keeps on hand about 70,000 rounds on, a, on any given year for training and deployments and contingencies. The Marine Corps, I've been told, is down to 14,000 rounds. So where does that, where do you make up 65,000 rounds? So should we conclude that if there is a war with China or Russia, that we are in bad shape? We're in bad shape. I think we would have an initial pulse of capability. Uh, it wouldn't be so bad if our, if our allies were strong, but they're not. West Germany in the Cold War had 5,000 tanks. Today they have fewer than 300. The British Royal Navy has fewer than 20 surface combatants. Uh, Japan hasn't thought about what they call out-of-area operations, you know, military operations, uh, since the end of World War II. So we don't have capable allies, even if they're buying new stuff. It's very small in quantity. They don't have any operational experience at all, so they would have to figure it out. We're operating thousands of miles from home with a military that's half the size it should be, and it's using very old equipment. And our people can't fly and drive and shoot to the levels they need to be to be actually competent in those first battles. So I think we're entering a danger zone, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. So in my lifetime, the Vietnam War <clears throat> turned out to be extraordinary, extraordinarily controversial. Yes. I watched the government lie to me during that process about whether we were winning or not winning. It's been fully documented. Then you have Afghanistan, mm -hmm. where we spent a trillion dollars in right. 20 years. Uh, and I don't know who you blame, but we also weren't informed about the waste that was going on there to the extent that it was. Why should anybody outside of this whole thing think we're getting the truth anywhere? Yeah, I would be skeptical. I mean, I've grown up in this world, right, <laughs> seeing a lot of these shenanigans happen. So uh, what I would say is that the decision to use military power is always a political decision. 
I mean, the Pentagon doesn't just decide on its own, and we wouldn't want it to, to go invade some country, right, or to take somebody on. So it's a political decision. Those decisions are made by elected officials, president supported by Congress with funding. I mean, this is the will, will of the people, you know, in, in a very kind of macro sense. So it, the decision to employ power is political. How wars end are always difficult and controversial, stretching back millennia. How do you end a war? World War II was a very weird thing and that it was absolute surrender, right? The RUS Civil War was also, you know, total surrender, right? But but in terms of historical precedent, very, very odd. You know, normally things kind of peter out, lots of loss, and it's very unsatisfying. So in the conduct of the war from its start to its unsatisfying, you know, end, uh, all these politics and different administrations and the will of the people ebbs and flows. I mean, World War II, we had, what, five or six or seven war bonds drives that got increasingly difficult as you got into 1944, 1945. So even at that scale, you know, public willingness to support was starting to waver. So all I, we can say in our index is we have a military so that when we are attacked or an ally is attacked or we have a core critical interest that is severely challenged. Energy flows, access to markets, an expansionist Iran or China or whoever it might be, you can't invent that military overnight, right? So it takes years to develop these things, to get pilots trained, to brigade brigades efficient, to build ships. Uh, you have to be thinking 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Actually using that should be expressed, you know, as a will of the people through their elected representatives. But when you do decide to use that because you have to or there's a national imperative to do or whatever reason, it's either there, ready, modern, and capable, or it's not. And if it's not, then you have reduced your options, you have allowed or encouraged aggressors to take advantage of that, right? Part of deterrence is your competitor's belief that you not only have the ability to stymie their objectives, but also actually do something about that. So if you're perceived as weak, no trading partners, no friends, an empowered, incentivized field of competitors, then America loses all the way around. As you know, there's a contract, I think, for something like 2,500 F-35s. The Marine Corps has an F-35. It's different than the others, but it's all joint strike fighters. What is your opinion of the F-35? It's had a lot of delays. It's not; they're not making as many as they were supposed to make at this point. And they call this the most—I don't know—most valuable weapon system that we've ever had. It's actually a fantastic aircraft. Again, I'll turn to my colleague J.V. Venable, who's you know career pilot, and he's talked to uh, pilots who flew the older aircraft. They also fly the new F-35. We looked at the system development, its sensor suite. Uh, there's just nothing on the planet that can touch it, with perhaps the exception of the F-22 uh, Raptor, uh, whose purchase was also truncated, right? Uh, 750, I think, planned, and we settled in at like 174 or something like those lines. Uh, the Cold War was over. So this is the 1990s. Uh, why do we need a very expensive, you know, capable aircraft designed to penetrate enemy air defenses when there is no enemy air defense to penetrate? The Soviet Union was gone away. China was not yet what it is today. So there was no threat. And so in this extended period of peace in the 1990s, we were more afraid of Japan buying Hawaii 
and how to make money in Silicon Valley than some kind of external threat. So to save money and to reduce the defense budget, uh, which people would love to see, less government spending, uh, that very expensive program was ended. All the tooling equipment was done away with. You cannot make a new F-22. And yet now we see the rise of China. We see modern integrated air defense systems. We see a Russia that will not be satisfied to see its military destroyed. It's going to come back with a vengeance and uh, want uh, payback, right, to see what's happened to it, even though it initiated the war in Ukraine. It's just the way people and countries operate. <clears throat> so when we look at the F-35, again, there was a fiction that everybody bought into and the program was envisioned, and that instead of buying different airplanes for different services, why have three programs for the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps when you can get it all done with one? So the lie in that is flying airplanes off of a 10,000-foot runway for the Air Force, flying it off an 800-foot runway, you know, catapult shots off of the um, uh, carrier deck, and flying it uh, short takeoff and vertical landing for the Marine Corps, that one airplane can do all those things. So you find that you had to so modify the original design that they turn out to be basically three different airplanes anyway. But all the delays to get that figured out, the expenses to modify things, to have different engines you know, in them, especially on the Marine Corps' uh, Stovall version, you end up paying more because you weren't honest up front. But as they have worked out those bugs, it is a fantastic airplane. To the numbers being procured, it's one of the things we write up in the report. We don't understand the Air Force's acquisition program. They've spent 70% more on research and development to get a sixth-generation airplane sometime in the late 2030s than they're willing to spend on current production aircraft. So we're already short airplanes, and they have very old airplanes. They're only buying... 33 F-33s, if I remember my numbers right, this year when the when the uh, the company could give them 100. So, you know, anytime you buy in bulk, right, you get more things for less, less price per item. And yet the Air Force decided to buy fewer to spend money on a fourth-generation plus airplane, the F-15EX, uh, which is a better version of the F-15, but it's not stealthy. And it will not survive in a modern anti-air threat environment if you had to go to war in Europe or in the Indo-Pacific. And they're uh, taking more money uh, to design uh, an airplane for the 2030s than they are spending on current production airplanes. So some of these uh, decisions by the services mystify us, and we report that in our index. What do you think of the management of the military by the United States Congress? Uh, 535 board members. <laughs> so if you're looking for efficiency in the Department of Defense to buy anything or to do anything, can you imagine a company with over 500 board members? How many different states build things for the F-35? Well, uh, on that, I think it's like 35 or something like that because you've got different suppliers. You'll have uh, – here's a, a, a vulnerability, which also gets into these big five companies that you talked about, you know, the, the top tier. Soviet Union goes away in the 90s. We're, we're slashing the size of the military, so you don't need as much stuff, right? You've got a whole inventory of tanks. Why would I need to buy another tank? So anybody who is in the tank building business goes out of business with the exception of uh, uh, General Dynamics, right? Uh, the uh, Lockheed Martin makes the F-35. They have one final assembly plant for the F-35 in the United States. There's one in Europe and one in Japan, but Fort Worth, Texas is it. So you talk about a strategic vulnerability. So if you're... 
make tires or you make um, wiring harnesses or light bulbs or anything through F-35, if the company isn't building F-35s and selling it to the Air Force or the Navy, how does the second, third, and fourth tier manufacturer actually stay in business, right? But look at where we are. You're looking at China and Russia. Yeah and the United States when it comes to a future war. China doesn't have to ask anybody in Congress, can we spend anything on anything? Neither does Russia. Are we in a difficult position because of that and unable to fulfill what you think we need because of so many hands in the pie? Yeah, I think think it's um, a necessary evil problem in our system. So we absolutely want accountability to the taxpayer for how those funds are being spent. We do not want some good old boy network, right, where whoever the top tier leadership is in the defense company has a buddy who makes tires or something, and so they're going to give all their business, you know, port all these defense dollars to a select few preferred clients, right? So you want um, you want competitiveness in the marketplace. You can't have competitiveness if there isn't more than one manufacturer, but if you're not building and buying products, it's hard to have more than one manufacturer, right? So that consolidation of the industry in the 1990s mean that there are only a very few number of companies that can make an advanced airplane or ship or missile or radar system. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. And so when a, con- when a contract is offered and the Army says, I want a thing, There aren't that many companies who have the requisite expertise and production capability that can even bid on that thing. So that's a problem of our own making. Congress then will get involved and say, but that's not fair. I mean, I've got a company in my district that if they were just given a little bit of seed capital, could come up to speed and also bid on that thing. Well, are taxpayer money supposed to be meant as seed capital? You know, to to bring new uh, companies, how do you pick and choose winners and losers? Isn't that favoritism? Remember Solyndra and some of these other things where the government decided to put taxpayer monies into a particular industry or company, and it just doesn't work out that well. So the consolidation of the industry in the 90s meant there were very few players. Those few players are going to hire up all the talent and engineers and have the manufacturing capabilities. You know, can I build a tank, physically speaking? Um, so when you need a new tank or an airplane, there are very few people who can actually bid on that in a credible way. So Congress will get upset about that, and then they try to meddle <laughs> or exercise oversight or try to get more people involved. That's going to increase the program cost, increase its complexity, and you're going to slow things down because now Congress will want reports. They're going to want to challenge the awarding of a particular contract. And so hence another delay, right, in in buying something. More money that's spent to try to get more people involved, but those monies spent to get more competitors in the space don't actually produce an end item, but they add to the overall program cost. So these are these nuances, these realities and complexities that just are not conveyed to the public to explain why things take longer and are more complicated. So this necessary oversight that you don't have in China or Russia, well, we don't want some authoritarian state here in the United States. 
right? Where you have some autocrat that's just spending money that they extract from the public, you know, as they want. But, but if why? you introduce supervision, you know, and reporting, it's going to cause delays. And why did it take so long to have an audit of the Pentagon that really was controversial <laughs> once they did it and we didn't get much out of it? So an audit of a commercial enterprise gets complicated when there are mergers and acquisitions and an asset that was procured under one company label is now transferred to another company. I mean, how do you account for that particular dollar being invested or the return on that dollar? Now expand that to the Department of Defense. It's been in business for since it was established as its current form in the late 1940s, how many administrations, how many Congresses, uh, how many secretaries of defense and, and service secretaries with the Navy, Air Force, and, and Army, right? So this color of money, you know, a dollar that was allocated in 1981 to buy a, a building at a fort in Kansas. Well, 20 years later, the fort is closed that building ownership has changed hands through seven or eight different government organizations. So how do I track that dollar, right? I mean, on whose ledger does that dollar exist? Uh, When something was destroyed in combat, I write that off as a combat loss. Well, maybe the dollar associated with that didn't percolate through the seven or eight reporting chains. So when we do see news reports about the Pentagon unable to account for a trillion dollars worth of whatever, a lot of times that's that $1 being accounted for in profit and loss, right? Adding to inventory or taken out seven or eight or nine times. So it's kind of a misreporting. And then you would have an accounting firm coming in and trying to understand 50 or 60 or 70 years worth of transactions under different corporate leadership, right? different types of money. Uh, Sometimes uh, we'll have an issue like during sequestration, the Budget Control Act of 2001, where the normal defense budget is limited. And then Congress will say, we understand you need more money, not subject to limitations. And so here is the supplementary fund. So additional funding that was designated for a certain use, how do I account for those dollars, right? So the, the books inside the Pentagon at the department level, civilian departments, and then the military services have gone through so many changes over so many years that it's nigh on impossible to get a clear audit statement, right, on, on the complexity of that enterprise. Does that mean we shouldn't try? No, I'm not saying that. But, but understanding the complexity and how the Defense Department has to operate against a set of rules that are often not its own making – and those rules change with every Congress. And how many Congresses have we had? I mean, it, it, the House turns over every two years, right? Well, let's go back, though, to what we talked about sure. earlier. You have staff in Congress that work on the, uh, the um, military committees. committees that leave there and go downtown to work for these big uh, corporations that build all this stuff. You have members of Congress that do the same thing. They become lobbyists for the Boeings and all <laughs> mm-hmm. that. Uh, and then we talked earlier about the military, once they retire, going out and working for these companies, uh, either in a lobbyist position or uh, working for they've, – they've worked on a particular item, a weapon, and then they go out into the corporation and continue working for it at twice the amount of money that used to get paid. And you go back to – and I 
you've heard this so many times. General Eisenhower said, "Beware of the military-industrial sure. complex." And you're say, you're you know twenty years in the Marine Corps, you're sitting here saying we're in bad shape. China and Russia are are stronger shape than we are as we sit here. So, what's the answer to all this? Do you have an answer? An interested public, uh, you know, and, and not just interested, but educated and informed. So um, I think there is a lot of well-placed righteous anger that, you know, I spend however much I do on my taxes. The government, you know, takes it and they're going to tell me that we've got an $800 billion defense budget and yet we're weak. How could this possibly be? Well, there is a 30 or 40 year story that leads to that, right? The 20 years of operations, a lot of that money was spent on fuel, ammunition and replacing blown up gear, very little was spent on actual bringing new equipment in to replace the stuff that was being aged out, replacing those munitions. You know, once you burned up a gallon of gas, that gallon of gas is gone. You can't say, well, I already gave you a gallon. Well, yeah, but I've got current operations today, so I need another gallon of fuel, right? So it's that level of understanding. Um, again, this lack of direct exposure to military affairs. You know, coming out of World War II in Korea, <clears throat> you had a whole host of adults that were coming from the world of military experience into the business community and the government, and they kind of understood the context uh, of that. We have very little of that today. Uh, a very small number uh, in, in the Congress that have military experience, although I think there are like 200 or so running this year, which is great. But sometimes that experience itself is kind of viewing a larger operation through a soda straw. You know, so you did a tour or two in Iraq back in 2008, uh, probably junior in rank. Uh, your worldview was informed by that particular personal experience. So you appreciate the military, but now you're at an elevated level talking about multi-billion dollar procurement programs. Who has experience in this kind of very complicated world? You know, the federal acquisition regulations uh, are just enormous. So um, I've got a, a friend who worked for years in the uh, Internal Revenue Service, uh, finally left that to go work for one of the big accounting firms because they wanted to hire him because he understood federal tax code as it applied to a certain sector of tax law. At some point, he'll retire from that firm, and he will probably be in high demand as an independent consultant. Because if you're a company that wants to do business with the government, or you're going to do a merger or an acquisition of some type, you want to know how the government is going to view that transaction. Or if you want to stand up a mom-and-pop shop and make tires for the F-35, how do you even get into that business? And so you reach out to somebody who actually understands that, and you're going to pay them for their time. So they're, ex they're selling their experience, something that you wouldn't have, and they're going to charge you for that. You know, I would love to do work on my own car. I used to be able to do that when it was mechanical, and now everything is digital. So I don't do any electrical work, and I've got to pay, you know, whatever the uh, labor rate is to have a certified mechanic at the dealership, you know, do that specialized kind of work. So there's just a, a cost of doing business. I'm not saying it's not that it's insoluble, but I think a, a better informed American public that could ask good questions, challenge their representatives in Congress, and then it's incumbent upon that elected representative to actually understand what the heck they're doing. A lot of these people will be placed on these committees because they've got a, a military base in their home district, and so they want to represent that district, and yet they don't have any background in 
federal acquisition, uh, you know, buying procurement things, uh, training of military forces. I mean, the complexity of all the things we've talked about, they just don't have a background in that. So it's incumbent upon them to learn and to report honestly back to their constituency, you know, to the people that they're representing. And if we could just get that going, it's a high bar, right? But I think that's the only way to get some rationality back into the system. On that note, let me remind uh, our listeners that the uh, this is a Heritage Foundation Index of U.S. Military Strength for 2023. And our guest has been Lieutenant Colonel Retired Dakota Wood, who is the editor of this publication. It's 578 pages, over 16 experts that you used in order to tell the story of the entire military. And we thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I really, really enjoyed this. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.